It is so good to gather with you, Maple Avenue Baptist Church. Um, We are in the study of the book of Hebrews, and we are at Hebrews chapter 16, verses 13 to 20, which is on page 1004 of your pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. So we're going to read that together. So uh, as you find that, can you please stand up? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having plenty, patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. And so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we just sang that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we sang that as a declarative, as a true statement. Father, while that might be true, many of us feel like we have our other hopes, other foundations where we're building our hope on. So, Lord, in your kindness, would you just uproot those and destroy those? Lord, and may we build our hope on Jesus. And Father, you, you do that through each other, Lord, for, through other Christians. Father, you do that through singing. You do that through prayer. And Father, now we ask that you would do that through the preaching of your word. God, for your good, for your glory, and for our good, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Maple Avenue Baptist Church, it is really good to gather with you today. It is a highlight of my week, and I know for many of you sitting here, it's a highlight of your week. Um, To look you in the eye and to ask how you're doing, and then to follow it up with, no, how are you really doing, right? What other context can we do this in, where we feel such warmth and love, to sing with you, to pray with you, to open God's word with you? You see, just like our body is affected by certain things we eat or exercise or lack of exercise, so our souls are affected by certain things we do, right? Our our personhood is not merely just who we physically are, right? Our personhood is much more than that. And we consider the march for life. We care about the unborn because we don't think... That a baby in the mother's womb is just tissue. 
we really believe and think that there's a person in there, a living soul. And so with us, we are living souls. And our souls diet on certain things. God in his wisdom has designed it that Christians gather together at least weekly in order to care for our souls. One pivotal element of this soul edifying exercise is what we're doing right now. In order to edify our souls, we are here to be built up. And one of the biggest elements of that soul edifying exercise and meeting here is to increase our hope. You see, I want to be more hopeful when I walk out these doors. And I want each one of you to be more hopeful as you walk out these doors and you take on your week. And that's just not my desire. That's God's desire for you, that you would increase in your hope. So we can do things that increase our hope or diminish our hope. Just like with our physical bodies, we do things that are good for our bodies or we do things like eat poutine five days in a row that are bad for our bodies. I've done that, maybe. (laughs) Don't recommend it. Um, So, did you know right now, though, you can be at risk of feeling like your hope is fleeting? Like right now, Christian, you're at risk, each one of us, of having feeling like our hope is fleeting and off somewhere else. Do you know that right now your soul can start either losing the sense of hope altogether or replacing true hope with false, flaking, and fading hopes? That is the context of the book of Hebrews. That is what is going on in this church. This church has committed themselves to following Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. This is a Christian church. They have committed to following him and trusting him with their very lives. But their road and their pursuit, their pilgrimage in following Jesus has not come without its difficulties. We know that this church has endured hard struggles and sufferings. Uh, We get the brunt of that from chapter 10. Chapter 10 says that some among them have been publicly reproached and have been afflicted. So they've been suffering in such a way, not just privately in their home, but in a public way. They've been mocked and shamed and reviled. They even had their property stolen from them in the midst of all this. Chapter 10 says that they were joyfully going about their days because they knew they had a better possession in Christ and in heaven. So formerly, formerly, this church had such a bold witness that their property was being stolen from them. And they said, what gives? I've got this inheritance in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy it. But something's going on right now. And that's part of the occasion for this letter. The church started out well, but they're in need of endurance. And particularly, they're in need of an enduring hope. Their hope seems to be fading. The sense of their hope, that is. Interestingly, it's not trials, or not mainly outward trials that are crippling their hope. So he doesn't say that all these things are happening to you, A, these outward trials, plus B, 
uh, your, your, your stolen property is not equaling your diminished hope. There's something unique about the reason that their hope is crippling. It's their own sluggishness. Sluggishness. If that word is kind of new to you, that's because it's not in the New Testament two times. And it's in chapter 5 of Hebrews and chapter 6. Two weeks ago, we studied how they were becoming dull of hearing. They no longer were excited listeners for God's word. So you can just picture them gathering together on Sunday. And most of the church is just dull. They've grown weary. They're tired of hearing this. They're sluggish. The author tries to increase their hope in this sluggishness. First, he wants to spur their hope on by, intim- by imitating faithful followers like the patriarch Abraham. That's our first point. He wants to spur their hope on by imitating Abraham. Secondly, he encouraged them, encouraged them to hold fast to their hope because God cannot lie. He's saying, church, your hope should increase because God cannot lie. And thirdly, he reminds them their hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. Their hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. So those are our points. Increase your hope by looking at Abraham. Increase your hope because God cannot lie. And Jesus, your hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. So let me read 13 through 15 again. Spur your hope by imitating Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to whom, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So we left off last week saying that in order not to be sluggish in their faith, they ought to imitate those who have already inherited the promises of God through faith and patience. So church, the danger is that they're becoming sluggish. And the anecdote, at least the first anecdote, is to remember Abraham. So what is sluggishness? And are you at risk of being sluggish this morning? The same word of becoming dull of hearing and the same word in our text, uh, in, 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 verse, um, pardon, in verse 12 and 11 of Hebrews, is, is for sluggish, is the same word. So dull of hearing and sluggishness, same word in the Greek. The word is only used twice in the New Testament, in 5.11, when they're called dull of hearing, and in 6.12, when, he, when uh, our English trans- translations use the word sluggish. And if you're at all familiar with the book of Proverbs, you know that this sluggard character comes up often, 14 times to be exact. So Proverbs uses the word sluggish to call those who, uh, just like a door creaks on its creaks, so is a sluggard who turns on his bed. And the sluggard is the one who says, I'm not going to go outside. There's a lion out there. Meaning, that's a ridiculous excuse for being lazy. You slug, (laughs) the proverb says. Or the sluggard is the one who doesn't do all the hard work for harvest time, but when harvest time comes, he goes out to gather and there's nothing there. And so the author of Hebrews is relating this church, you becoming sluggish, you're dull of hearing. So, dear Christian, is that you this morning? He's not saying this, doesn't ha- this is a non-Christian category. He's saying that this is a Christian. Christian, you are at risk of becoming dull and sluggish in your faith. 
So he's warning them, don't become habitually lazy, Christian. Don't become sluggish in your faith. Exchange your dullness to liveliness as you consider Abraham. So, dear Christian, I wonder how many of you, how many of us fit into this camp, this sluggish camp? Perhaps one time your faith was vivacious. It was lively. You became a Christian. You were telling people about Jesus. You were reading your word. You had a rich prayer life. And over time, it's like a steady trickle, become dull. Your faith has become sluggish. And it doesn't excite you anymore. You're growing weary of following Jesus in this world. Well, if that's you, and that's been many of us who've, who've walked the Christian life for longer than a couple years, there might be some seasons like that. He is talking to you. So is your faith sluggish or lively? Many Christians have experienced seasons like this. So you're not alone if you're saying, yeah, that's me right now. You're not alone. And he's saying, look at Abraham, our forefather. And particularly, he's looking at at Genesis chapter 22. So let's turn there. Genesis chapter 22, which is on page 17 of your pew Bible. I think it's on page 17. Is that correct? Genesis 22 on 17 or 16? What is that? 16. 16. Okay. Hopefully most people figured it out, but if you didn't, it's on page 16. So just a reminder, this is what he's doing right now. He said that to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit, inherit the promise. So he's saying be imitators of people like this. And then he jumps into all the examples. He goes into Abraham. And particularly, he's going to Genesis chapter 22, the story of Abraham about to sacrifice his son Isaac. So as we read Genesis 22, remember what the author of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants you to do right now. He wants you to imitate this man's faith in his God. Chapter 22, verse 1 of Genesis. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there 
and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him up on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out of his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh it shall be provided. And the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you, your offspring, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. See, God is testing Abraham in this narrative. What are we supposed to gain from such a tense scene? You can feel the tension, right? Like a knife over his only son... And his son breaking into silence and saying, Father, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Right? And not just the life of his son, the sheer just you know, the, the, hum, the human emotions that come from a father getting ready to sacrifice his son, but all the promises that God has given beforehand. In Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, they hang in the balance. In Genesis 3, one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, of Satan. It's supposed to happen through this man and his lineage. And Abraham and Sarah, they waited 25 years from when they first heard the promise of God in Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 12.2. So you feel that tension. Like, Abraham, you're having faith in this God all the promises, the whole narrative of the Bible is, is, is weighing in the balance here. And that's what we're getting at in Genesis 22. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Look at this man's faith in his God. Emulate this faith. Look at 22.17. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. This is the third time that as readers of Genesis that we've read this promise. The third time that we know that that Abraham gave this promise to Abraham. So in their 25 years of waiting, Abraham patiently waited. He patiently endured. Against all human odds, Abraham believed God, and God was pleased with Abraham's faith and credited it to him as righteousness. You see, the meat that the author wants to give to this church, this is the meat. Remember the milk and the meat that he's talking about? We've looked at in Hebrews 5 and 6. He said, your diet's been milk. 
you can't even get some meat, and I'm about to give you some meat. Now he's digging back into Genesis and showing that this promise of the Messiah is rooted in Genesis. And we'll get some more meat as we get into Melchizedek later on in the following weeks. But he's just starting to show that in order to get to, in order to, get to understand Melchizedek, you must first understand the foundation of these promises. And he's saying, Christian, emulate this man's faith. Not because this man was something special. We know Abraham failed. We know Abraham failed in many ways, in some grievous ways. But he had faith in God ultimately, that God would provide a way. So what does this mean for us? Is it okay to try to emulate someone's faith? Well, I think this is part of the application of this text. And I think God wants us to do, and to be a healthy church, He wants us to emulate one another's faith sometimes. Not put our hope and trust in someone, but to look at someone and say, wow, look at how they're following Yahweh. Look how they're following our Lord Jesus Christ. I admire that faith. I want to follow that. That's what He's doing. He's telling... He's telling these people to look at Abraham. He's telling us to look at Abraham. So if you're struggling in your hope, if your hope feels like it's wavering, are you talking to other Christians? Are you getting to know other Christians in our midst? Are you seeing evidences of faith? Is your faith inspired? If you are doing that, then what's probably happening to your hope is probably being built up. Now, I, I, I love talking to distraught Christians. You know, there's a weightiness about it, but I like being weighed down sometimes because that brings me back down to reality. And I love hearing how uh, I've heard this the two and a half years I've been here by various saints. Like, I don't know how I'm getting through this, but by the grace of God. I'm looking at that hope, and I'm like, oh, dear Jesus, you are the anchor of their souls. Praise God. So sluggish Christian or habitually lazy or dull of hearing Christian, if you feel like your hope is wavering, going up and down and up and down with the twists and turns of this life, I have a question for you. Do you know other Christians in this church? Are you getting to know them? Do you even have the ability to emulate their faith like we are to emulate Abraham's faith? Get to know one another. Ask good questions. Ask the question, what are you hoping in this week? How did you get through this week? What are you doing to put one foot in front of the other? You see, God is a stronghold for all of us. And at different and varying seasons of life, it appears so bright that it is so hard to miss how much of a stronghold he is. So see how others are holding on to the promises of God when life looks really bleak. And let that do something amazing for your faith. So that's our first point. Is spur on your hope by looking at the faith of Abraham. Spur on your hope by looking at the faith of Abraham and the faith of others. Secondly, verses 16 to 18. Hold fast to your hope because God cannot lie. Hold fast to your hope because God cannot lie. 
back in Genesis 22, in the narrative account where Abraham and Isaac and the ram, the, and the ram that is caught in the thicket, God reiterates the promise he already made. As I said earlier, this is the third time. So why is God... You, if I'm going to trust God, he can't have 1,000 things be true about him and one thing, uh, one thing be a lie, right? I mean, I would just jump ship if I found out all these true things about God, the creator of the universe, but there's this one thing that he lied about. So the question is, why is God reiterating something he's already said? This is the third time he's saying this. Knowing human weakness and how quick we are to forget, he took the promises that he already made in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, and he's reiterating them again and saying it in an oath. And he's not doing this because he needs to bolster what he said is already true. He's doing this. He's looking at humans and saying, because in your weakness, I'm going to help you out here. Because in your weakness, I'm going to help you out. Because God himself is not a liar. You see, if any part of the Bible is faulty, if we can trust 99% of it, but we can't trust that there really was a virgin birth, or if we can't trust that Jesus really did walk on water and it really was like a sandbar or something like that, then we can't trust any of it. Because the claims of this book and of the God of this, that this book points to, there are, they are universal claims. They're true every day from the beginning of time until uh, infinity. They're always true. God is not a liar, but humans are liars. We lie. We bend truth. We say have truths. We quantify our lies by what color of lie it is. It's a white lie. It's just a little white lie. It doesn't matter that much. So whether it's a white lie or if you're on the stand and you've sworn on a stack of Bibles, it's still a lie. And it's showing that humans have an issue. And God does not succumb to that weakness. So we in our fallen nature, we're tempted with bending truth and with lies in our unrighteousness. It's really rooted in our insecurity. A white lie, you know, uh, so you play a basketball game and you only scored 12 points, but you wanted it to get in the teens because the teens sounds better, so you said you scored 14 points, right? So that's rooted in insecurity, right? I want people to think a little bit better about myself. I'm guessing most of us are tempted with lying like that. We want people to think a little bit better about ourselves. The other, uh, one of the other main reasons we lie is because we just don't want to get in trouble, I know if I tell the truth, then I'm getting in trouble. You can see this in little kids. You can see this in, um, you know, uh, you watch trials. You're like, somebody's lying here, right? O.J. Simpson is either lying or he is telling the truth or uh, the person opposite him is lying. Something is going on here. So God does not succumb to that. He is truthful through and through. He has no insecurities about him that he needs to lie to man. That God's glory is completely unaffected by what others think of him. His glory stands whether he has one follower in this world or whether he has a billion. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and always as Hebrews 13.8 says. He sits in the heavens. He scoffs at leaders of this world that try to break apart his redemptive plan for mankind. He scoffs at human efforts, efforts to quench his work. He's not bound by man's opinion of him. So he doesn't just lie because he has no need to lie, but he is utterly, his character is utterly against it. He is what is true in this world. God is truth. So here's bringing it back down to, to our text. When you swear on something, you swear on something more valuable or greater than you. Okay, I don't know if you guys remember on the playground. Someone says, are you telling the truth? What do you swear on? Your mother's grave, right? <laughs> you guys remember that? No? Can I just get a hand? Am I just culturally? Oh, thank you, Danae. Okay. <laughs> you swear on your mother's grave, okay? Even if you had a bad mama, everyone loves their mama, right? And then you put it on her tombstone, okay? And that usually settles the argument, okay? You swear on your mother's grave, or maybe, you remember this? I pinky promise, Okay? Someone pushes you in a corner, and you say, are you sure you're telling the truth? Yeah, pinky promise. Okay. You're telling the truth. You don't break a pinky promise. You don't break swearing on your mother's grave. See, when I was uh, a teenager, my friend uh, who led me to Christ, Scott, and myself and another guy named Justin, we had our own uh, word for that. We call it nibbles. Okay? Nibbles was, uh, you guys remember those TI-89 calculators? Uh, no one's going to remember that who's younger than 25, but it's these box calculators that are this big, and they had a game on there that you, uh, while you're doing math work in class, you could play uh, uh, nibbles, and it's a worm that got food, and it became longer, and you tried not to get your, the worm to touch itself, okay? So I don't know why we picked that, but that was our pinky promise. So, you know, we're playing a game, and uh, usually Scott and I would play tennis, and it was online, and it looked like out of the line. It's like, Scott, that was out. He's like, no, it was in. I was like, dude, I saw this out. Like, nibbles, Scott? Nibbles, that was out. That was in. And I'm like, okay. Case closed, settle. He nibbled it. You don't break that. <laughs> Friends don't break that. That was our pinky promise. But one dreadful, memorable day, we had our testosterone going. We were playing some kind of game at his house the three of us. And we didn't believe what Scott was saying, and we made him nibble it, and he nibbled it. His own guilty conscience later came around and said, hey guys, I, uh, when I said nibbles back there, I, I, I lied. All our faith and hope just deteriorated, deteriorated right there in that moment. Our friend, our trustworthy friend, he broke his covenant, his oath with us. So we made him do a severe consequence, which I couldn't remember, but he certainly did when I asked him about that this week. The point is, even in... See, Scott is the one that told me the gospel of Jesus Christ. I trusted him, I loved him, and I lied to him too. Um, I just couldn't remember in those times, of course. Um, just his time. <laughs> I trusted him, he trusted me. We had such a close bond of friendship. But even in close human bonds... We had to create some kind of form of oath in our adolescence called nibbles because sometimes we just didn't trust one another. 
Because we knew in our human weaknesses, and we were pushed to it, our pride became so big, we needed someone to make an oath or some kind of, uh, of promise. See, God is not held by those standards, and that's what he's saying. Someone, when you swear by something, you've got to swear by something greater than yourself. Who else is God going to swear by? He's going to swear by his own name. And Israelites, when they would swear, they would say, as surely as the Lord lives, as surely as Yahweh lives, they would swear by his name. So there's nothing greater than, you, that, than this that you can swear by. And that's what he says when he says by two unchangeable things. You see that? He says by two unchangeable things there uh, in verse 18. The two unchangeable things, one is God himself, his own character. God, when he says something, he means it, and it will be true forever. The other unchangeable thing is he adds on top of that. It's like a double dose of of God promises. So those are the unchangeable things. Not only is his character, did he say this, it's going to come true, but he even put an oath on top of it. Not because he needed to, but because he knows humans are weak. So Christian, trust in this God who cannot lie. He will not lie to you. As you read the promises in his word, you declare them as truth. Don't let Satan steal your joy of trusting in a truthful God who gives promises and does not lie. He doesn't need some man-made system whether it's adolescent pinky promises or placing your hand on a Bible to be sworn in during trial. You see, Christian, we have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope before us because God has not just promised us an inheritance with him. He's given us an oath as to underscore his already true promises. Those are the unchangeable things. Double, he doubles it with an oath. So let me just talk, if you're here and you're still uh, on your journey of, of discovering, maybe you don't want to be a Christian, maybe you're still figuring out what it means to be a Christian, or you're a bit, bit skeptical of your Christianity, your, skeptic, your skepticism is rooted in your doubt of the truth claims of Christianity, I imagine. So you're, you're probably doubting, like, is this thing actually true? And if you're here, you're on some kind of journey to figure out whether this is true or not. So let me ask you this. If this isn't true to you, what exactly is your truth? And have you come close to figuring out anything that can be a capital T truth? Where have you found something that is so consistent and logical and tested and believed by people from so many diverse ethnicities, something so world-influencing, something as simple that a child can understand, but yet so proud, so, so profound that a hundred-year-old wise person still can't fully grasp something as otherworldly as the truth claims of Christianity found in the Bible? Where can you find this, and have you come even close? So let me encourage you, stay on this journey, because there's a group of people here that will put their whole lives on the line for this truth. We found something so sweet and pleasurable in this word that we will never give it up because we claim it as true. And if something's true, we're going to follow it all the way. 
So, spur your hope on by following Abraham's example and his faith in God. Secondly, increase your hope by knowing that God cannot lie. He will not lie. And third, your hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. Your hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 19 to 20. We have this as sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's just look at what the author, how the author explains this hope. He says it's sure and it's steadfast. He says this hope is concrete. It's steadfast. It remains through all hardships. It endures all things, and it never fades away. We're reminded of 1 Peter 1, where Peter beautifully says that we have this living hope that's undefiled, right? It's undefiled, it's untainted by this world, it's unfading, it will never fade away. It's unblemished, it endures, it is is holy, and it is beautiful, and it's enduring all things. We have this living hope. We have this inheritance waiting for us, that is imperishable. It's kept in heaven for you, First Peter says. So what else in this world offers sure hope? You see, your money will fail you. We've all bought something and been so excited about it, and then a couple weeks later, we're like, eh, we're looking for the next thing. This most evidently is portrayed on Christmas morning with kids and their toys. How I'm a, a month of anticipating opening up that beautifully wrapped box. They open it up. They play with it. And it's as if they forgot about it two hours later, right? So, so many things in our lives teach us that anything hoped in this world will eventually fade. I was playing basketball last Saturday. I was so excited because I had my ACL surgery 11 months ago. I've been doing some to, to try to get uh, healthy again so I can squeeze out the remaining years of my 30s to play basketball. <laughs> so I'm playing with a bunch of high schoolers, and uh, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm feeling good about myself, right? I'm feeling pretty good. And into the second hour, that was the first problem, into the, late in the second hour, I jump up, I jump up again, and left ankle. And I'm like, oh my goodness. My pride says, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And I hobble back, and I go to my car, and I get two cold bottles of water, and I go into my office, I lock the door, turn the lights off, elevate my leg, and I put the bottles on my ankle with my shoes still tied. People are still saying, Mark, Mark, where are you? I'm just there. And I start laughing. You see, I start laughing. And it's not because I always respond to trials like this. It's probably mainly because I'm in this text right here. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? That's been meditating and simmering in my soul. And I was like, God, you're teaching me. God, you're teaching me. I'm so foolish and so vain to start thinking that I'm going to put hope back in my athletic ability. Those days are gone. (laughs) Those days are gone. And all the people are older than me, they're like, amen. Like, they're gone. A foolish young preacher to put his hope in those things. But you see, I needed that ankle sprain. I needed it. 
I'm, gonna st- I- I'm so flaky, I can start hoping in things that I already know twice an ACL busted. And I'm still going to hope in something that. I'm not, I'm not saying this hope is going to, my athletic ability is going to surpass my hope in Jesus. But you see, our hope is multi-layered sometimes. And I'm going to start hoping in things that are other than Jesus. But this is driving me back to my anchor. So what about your life in this past week has God thrown you, God thrown you, to encourage you to stop hoping in that thing? What trial are you enduring right now? Where is God teaching you? If you're single, are you hoping in the ability to, get, to be married one day, to have three kids, to live in a nice house? If you're a parent, are you hoping in the ability to have perfect children? <laughs> oh, all the older people laughing once again. <laughs> so where are you placing your hope? And what has God, God done to bring you back down to your knees and make you realize where your hope is. What else will offer you sure hope in this world? Your body's going to fail you. Your money will fail you. More seriously, your friends will fail you. Your family will let you down sometimes. Your intelligence will fail you. I know some of you have uh, taken the biggest human oath you can take in marriage, and that's even failed you, whether that was your doing or someone else's doing. Don't let that reflect on your God, okay? Your God will not fail you. His oath, because he is God, is not like a human oath. Don't let that color the way you view God's promises. God's promises remain. In fact, let that drive you to love your Father more and to hope in what he declares is true, your inheritance with him. You see, our hope is sure. Our hope is sure. And he uses that example of an anchor. Look back at verse um, 19. He says, The hope is sure and steadfast, an anchor of the soul. An anchor of the soul. So just picture, because this is the illustration given in the Bible, we're going to use it. Picture a boat Okay, going up and down with the waves of a sea storm. And that anchor is just down there rooting it down. You see, that's Jesus. He's anchored there. And I'm trying very hard not to say, um, hope in Jesus, your anchor. And I'm trying to communicate, Jesus is your anchored hope. The point is, no matter how you feel, no matter what trials come your way, you're anchored down. So if you're feeling like this, if you're feeling like that boat that's just going up and down on the waves, that tsunami wall of 50 feet of wave is coming, there's a massive anchor weighing you down. And he is your hope. He will not break the line. How do we know that? Because look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. Verse 19. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus has entered the veil behind the curtain. We're going to study more about that. But the point is, Jesus has gone before you. He holds the anchor. So, Christian, 
Believing this causes you to soar over any trial that comes your way. Right? Anything throws your way, a car wreck to cancer to kids that are rebellious and have left the faith. It might feel like this, but if you tap into this hope, if you dig deep down, if you study God's word, you're soaring over that, less affected, less traumatized by that. It doesn't mean that you don't have human emotions that shake you and that rock you to your core. But, it, but you're anchored down because Jesus has gone behind the veil. He is a sufficient sacrifice. No one can go behind that veil and stay there. The high priest could only go once a year to sacrifice for the sins of the people. And Jesus, blameless, unblemished, he went behind the veil and he stands there pleading on our behalf and his pleads are sufficient to the heavenly father. So that sin that you're struggling with, that trial that you're enduring, Jesus pleads on your behalf. He's anchored there and he stands there and God the Father looks upon you in the same way that he looks upon his own son. Oh, dear Christian, would you believe this and let your faith soar through this? Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, how much more will we have all things in him? If he didn't give his own, if he didn't spare his own son for you, which he loved, his only unique beloved son, how much more will he now give you all things? So when you're experiencing a trial, know that that's part of the all things that God is giving you. And he's driving you down to hope better and more deeply in him. In conclusion, as storms over the ocean make an anchored boat bob up and down, so our difficulties. So our trials cause us to be sluggish or dull of hearing or weary. Our lives seem haywire. Know this, that Jesus is holding the rope. He is the anchor. He has indeed. He cannot go back on his word because he cannot lie. And we can read about all the promises of God that have become true from the Old Testament. And we can trust in the promises of God that will become true. An inheritance that's unfading, that's unblemished, that's kept in heaven for us. A city made of gold, a city where Jesus is the king, where there's no more dying, there's no more mourning, there's no more death at all. There's no crying. That's our hope. So tap into this hope, dear Christian. Let's pray.